This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Margaret Dunbar Cutright heaved the scrapbook into her office. The thick tome was filled to bursting with various papers but she carried it as gingerly as if it was her own child. She had been poring over these files for months, but she still felt a sense of chilling intrigue every time she cracked open the book. She stared once again at the dozens of newspaper clippings, photos, letters, and editorials, sorting them in her mind. Though all from different sources, they shared a common subject. Robert Bobby Dunbar. With the mid-afternoon light illuminating her work, Margaret opened up the latest box of photocopied documents from the 1910s. Hundred-year-old court papers, public library records, and maps were all among the information she was cataloging in her scrapbook. She had transcribed so many hard copies over the last few years that she had lost count of them. Some days, she felt like she was trying to chip away at a diamond with a toothpick. Yet she couldn't give up. This question had bothered her for her whole life, and she was closer than ever to finding the answer. And now, after poring over novels' worth of records, she had a new lead. Margaret reached down into a box and pulled out a book. She ran her finger along the spine, where, in faded letters, it read, Walter's Family Genealogy. She cracked it open and scanned the names on the page. Finally, she landed on what she was looking for, a phone number. She picked up her phone and dialed. Margaret anxiously wrapped the phone's cord around her finger as it rang. Her heart skipped a beat as a faint hello sounded on the other end. She politely introduced herself. All the while, she could not get a single haunting thought out of her head. These people's ancestors kidnapped my grandfather. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. 
And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on Bobby Dunbar, a four-year-old boy who vanished in 1912. After eight months of fruitless searching, Bobby was found. However, after his recovery, many disputed whether the boy who was found was the same boy who went missing. This week, we'll cover Bobby's disappearance and his parents' desperate months-long search. We will also cover the strange circumstances surrounding his discovery and the controversy over his identity. Next week, we'll investigate how Bobby might have vanished in the first place and whether the boy the Dunbar family brought home was the same child they originally lost. Bobby Dunbar cheerfully chased his cousins through the Louisiana swamp. A straw hat was perched on his head and his tiny bare feet squelched pleasantly in the mud. The marshland near Swayze Lake was dense, but it made for a pleasant family campground. Two Spartan cabins with room enough for everyone were situated at the private campsite. The Dunbars had come up from Opelousas, Louisiana, and were setting up to fish for the weekend, as they often did. In fact, on this day, Friday, August 23, 1912, they had already begun to catch their lunch. The thick Louisiana air lay heavily upon the party of eleven, but did little to dampen their joyful spirits. Percy and Lessie Dunbar lounged with their sons Alonzo and Bobby, several cousins, a family friend, and a servant girl. It was still morning when a messenger arrived at the campsite. He was carrying instructions for Percy Dunbar. Percy was a notary, and a client needed his help with a deed transfer. Thinking that this would be a quick and easy task, Mr. Dunbar walked toward his horse, his cork, prosthetic leg leaving prints in the soft dirt. He soon realized someone was following him. His son Bobby pursued, eager to accompany his dad to work. Percy attempted to turn the stout child around, assuring him that he would return to the campsite by noon. This news frustrated Bobby, and he flew into a tantrum, bawling and screaming. As Bobby attempted to prevent his father from leaving, the strap on his straw hat snapped. Percy quickly adjusted the hat on his son's head before mounting his horse and riding away. Meanwhile, the messenger took Bobby back to camp. He was soon distracted, looking for fun with the other boys. Of the kids in the group, Bobby was only older than his two-year-old brother, Alonzo, so he knew he might feel left out playing with his older cousins, but that would not stop him from trying. Bobby was happily playing with the older boys when family friend Paul Mitzi announced that he was going to the lake to shoot garfish. The garfish were giving the men trouble since they had a tendency to eat fish hooked on the line before the men could reel them in. 
Bobby ran inside and pleaded with his mom to let him go with Paul. Lessie agreed, but told Bobby to be wary of the dangerous drop-off into the murky waters of Lake Swayze. The lake was treacherously deep, and a clumsy person could easily fall in. Bobby agreed to be careful. Alonzo and another boy also leapt at the opportunity, and the four of them soon set off. At the water's edge, the long, sharp-toothed garfish were no match for Paul's marksmanship. The young boys gasped as Paul fired his pistol into the water, slaying the aquatic predators. At this point, the story gets murky. In later interviews, no one could remember the precise sequence of events since so much was going on. With lunchtime rapidly approaching, everyone bustled around. The men were catching whatever fish they could, and the women were setting the table. All were hurriedly rushing to dine on the fresh fish. Paul Mitzi lifted Alonzo on his shoulders, bouncing the two-year-old, who squealed with glee. As he skipped, he nearly trod on Bobby, who cried out. Paul responded, Get out of the way, Heavy, or I'll run over you. Bobby turned to the 30-year-old and said, You can't do it. You ain't no bigger than me. These were the last words anyone heard him say. The group assembled by the cabins, all ready and eager for lunch. As Lessie walked out of the building, she noticed that something was wrong. She blinked nervously, convinced she must be mistaken. But as she scanned every face in the group, her heart started beating quickly and her breath became shallower. Their group was one short. Her son, Bobby, was missing. Her heart thumping in her chest, Lessie hurried to Paul, who had Alonzo on his shoulders. She asked where Bobby was. Paul's face fell. He took a quick look around, but didn't see the boy anywhere. They asked the others whether they knew where Bobby went, but everyone exchanged the same dumbfounded glances. He had been out of sight for a mere 15 minutes, yet no one knew where the boy had gone. Lessie ran to the lake, screaming Bobby's name. She saw no sign of him by the water and returned to the campground, still yelling. After a moment of confusion, the other adults joined in the search, hollering for Bobby. As the others split up, Lessie's head began to spin. Her vision blurred. Her legs buckled underneath her, and she fainted. The search was well underway when Percy Dunbar wrapped up his notary appointment. On the way back to camp, he ran into three of the searching men who told him what happened. Without hesitation, he rushed to the cabins. Seeing his wife's crumpled body on the ground, he leapt off his horse and held her in his arms, gently waking her. With Percy back, the group redoubled their efforts. Percy remembered that his son's hat strap had broken. Surely his straw hat wouldn't have stayed on long without its strap, and finding the hat would be a telltale way to track Bobby. The searchers scoured the marshland around the lake, looking for the four-year-old or his hat. The thick peat by the shore was soft and malleable, but none of the footprints the party found were Bobby's size. The volunteers cut through the underbrush while Percy waded up to his chest in the lake. 
Neither the sticky mud, murky water, or even his cork leg could hinder the search for his little boy. Suddenly, two of the men returned to the camp, excited. They'd been searching south along a wagon trail and found something promising, a set of tiny tracks, barefoot, leading away from the wetlands. Lessie and Percy leapt to join them. Bobby was the only one of the children in the group who wasn't wearing shoes. If anybody had left a trail in the dirt, it was him. When they came upon the trail, Lessie used Bobby's sandals to identify the size of the feet. They matched Bobby's. Lessie gasped. They must be her sons. The parents rushed along the tracks, desperately hunting for any hint of Bobby. The path led to a railroad, which they crossed, leaving wet sand in their wake. But a few yards later, the prince abruptly disappeared. The four adults spread out, trying to find the prince again. Increasingly desperate, two of the adults went to a township in the area to see if any of the local children had feet that matched the footprints. But after bringing some of the kids to the tracks, it was plain to see that none of them had small enough feet. Around this point, a passenger train came by. The searchers flagged it down and told the confused vacationers on board what happened. Some of the passengers were so moved by the story, they hopped off the train to help with the search. And the conductor told Percy and Lessie that he would report the missing boy when the train reached Opelousas. Two hours later, word from the train had spread. More volunteers swarmed into the swamp, looking to find the lost little boy. Their weekend trip forgotten, Lessie sent her sister Rowena back to Opelousas with Alonzo for the night. That way, she knew at least one of her children was safe. As Percy organized the various volunteers into search parties, Lessie sat in one of the dank cabins, immobilized with fear. All she could think about was little Bobby. If he had been lost alone, he wouldn't have outpaced dozens of grown men. A suspicion started to grow in her mind, a fear that chilled her to the very bones. Her four-year-old son could have been kidnapped. When we return, the search for Bobby Dunbar gains national attention. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. On Friday, August 23rd, 1912, Tragedy struck a family fishing trip near Swayze Lake, Louisiana. Four-year-old Bobby Dunbar disappeared. His parents, Lessie and Percy, searched the swamp for hours. They were unable to find anything except a trail of footprints close to a nearby railroad track. But this trail abruptly vanished. By the end of the day, dozens of bystanders and volunteers flocked to the woods, all desperate to find the missing child. The search went on through the night as the hunters fought through the underbrush, 
lanterns and torches in hand to light their way. By now, most weren't looking for a living boy. They were looking for his body. The four-year-old had been gone for a whole day. If he hadn't heard their shouts, he must either be long gone or worse, dead. As the hunt wore on, the parties began to employ even more dangerous tactics to find Bobby. The searchers dynamited the lake, hoping to unearth any clue that may have sunk into the dark waters. The explosions revealed the bottom of the lake, but there was no sign of Bobby within. Since dynamite could not dislodge all they needed to see, the hunters strung a thick cable across the lake with massive hooks attached. They lowered the hooks into the lake to drag debris up from the muck. The alternating dynamiting and dragging continued as the night wore on. Eventually, a man cried out as a small, pale object floated to the surface of the disturbed waters. Percy Dunbar elbowed his way through the searchers, seizing a torch to illuminate the body. But once the corpse was revealed, he breathed a sigh of relief. It was merely a drowned deer. Bobby could still be alive, but they were no closer to finding him. Some of the searchers began to dive into the lake, digging into the places where the dynamite and the hooks could not reach. While some men plumbed the waters, others speculated on what became of little Bobby Dunbar. Some thought the four-year-old had been devoured by an animal, maybe a black bear or an alligator. An alligator was far more likely as a gator could attack from the water and disappear as quickly as it had pounced, prey trapped within its deadly jaws. This was not an unheard of fate for children in the southern bayous. Four years before, a three-year-old had vanished in a marsh about a hundred miles away from Swayze Lake. Those searchers had combed the quagmire, they found only bloody clothes to attest to that poor boy's fate. Percy, Lessie, and every man searching had undoubtedly heard of this case and feared that the same had happened to their own son. With that in mind, the searchers kept their eyes out for alligators as they scoured the bog. When they found the scaly beasts, they wasted no time. Gunshots rang out over the marsh as the volunteers killed alligators they saw floating on the surface. Hastily, they dragged the rough bodies into their boats and hacked them open. With the reptiles' bellies ripped open, the hunters dug through the alligators' innards, but they found neither clothing nor human remains. The night wore on and sounds of gunshots, explosions, and shouting echoed across the swamp. Lessie Dunbar waited within the cabin. Her heart was in her throat, getting heavier with each passing second. The sun rose on Saturday, August 24th, with no news of Bobby. Since his disappearance, word had spread like wildfire. Hundreds of people flocked to the mire to search for the missing child. Only a little more than a day had passed since Bobby's disappearance. But to Lessie Dunbar, it felt like an eternity. Distraught, she returned to her home in Opelousas. As she went farther away from the last known sighting of her son, fear gripped Lessie's heart in a cold, unforgiving vice. 
When she left, there were hundreds of searchers around Swayze Lake. They continued their work of combing through the lake, exploring the wilderness, and gutting alligators. That same day, the investigators decided to try a different tact. They aimed to follow a lead that Percy had suggested, Bobby's strapless straw hat. The men brought a similar hat to the lake. There, they floated it on the water's surface, watching to see how long it would stay visible. Seconds passed as the straw hat bobbed. Then minutes. Then hours. The hat was still afloat. This baffled the investigators. Even if Bobby had been consumed by a deadly predator, surely his hat would have floated to the surface and someone would have spotted it during the search. The straw hat's absence rendered Bobby's disappearance even more peculiar. Percy and Lessie latched onto this piece of evidence, which supported a suspicion they had cultivated since Bobby first vanished. He wasn't lost or eaten. He had been kidnapped. Regardless, the search of the bog continued. Bobby Dunbar's disappearance was now national news. And by August 30th, a week after he vanished, the Louisiana State Militia was in the bog managing the search. With Opelousas now in the spotlight, the community rallied around the Dunbars to help solve this mystery and end their suffering. The town gathered donations from local families in order to offer a reward for the vanished boy. They collected $1,000, the equivalent of about $26,000 today. Alongside the reward they published in newspapers, the family gave a detailed description of Bobby, down to a scar he had on his left foot. With the description in the hands of the press, the case's public profile ballooned. Everyone wanted to help find Bobby Dunbar, and amateur investigators sent in theories and tips. The first major sighting was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on August 30th, where witnesses saw a child matching Bobby's description riding a ferry with a veiled Italian woman. The witnesses said the woman was with a child who was not of her race. At the time, frequent immigration of Italians to the United States had rendered much of the public suspicious about their new European neighbors, so this sighting fed into common prejudice. Percy rushed to Baton Rouge to follow up on the lead, but to no avail. No one could find the Italian woman. Percy enlisted the help of the local police and went on a wild four-day hunt throughout New Orleans, going through every orphanage, boarding house, and hotel looking for Bobby. In spite of his best efforts, he found no trace of either the supposed Italian woman or his son. Meanwhile, letters poured into the Dunbar's mailbox. Some were from mediums, asking to be paid to divine the child's location, but many were sightings of a blonde boy fitting Bobby's description. One such letter arrived in early September from Mississippi. Written by a woman named Maddie Smith, the letter said she saw a boy with an eccentric local tinker. In her letter, Smith said the boy who followed the tinker along would frequently cry and ask to be sent home. 
Whether the Dunbars dismissed it as a lone sighting or it was simply lost in the sea of tips, they did not pay it much attention. Even though, unbeknownst to them, it contained the answer to their grief. When a second tip in the Baton Rouge area led to nothing of consequence, the county's sheriff offered to pay $5,000 in addition to the $1,000 reward for Bobby's safe return. In modern currency, Bobby's reward now totaled about $158,000. And after weeks of personally following up leads, Percy decided to hire help, the William Burns Detective Agency. Immediately, the detectives narrowed down the search by streamlining the details of Bobby's description. They investigated a second Baton Rouge sighting of a female suspect, possibly a light-skinned black woman. The nationwide search for Bobby was already very scattershot, with many people reporting when they saw a white child with people of other races. Tips like this new one fed into prejudice towards black communities, much as the earlier tip raises suspicion against Italians. Even as far north as Philadelphia, police harassed black neighborhoods and families, claiming they had a hand in Bobby's kidnapping. The months wore on and no successful leads came from the search's racist detour. In November, Percy expressed optimism that Bobby would be found since the publicity of his disappearance was now stronger than it had ever been. In spite of that cautious hope, Lessie Dunbar was still run ragged and only getting worse. She was so distraught Her sister had stepped in to care for Alonzo in the weeks following Bobby's disappearance. By the time Lessie returned to her baby, it had been a month since Bobby's disappearance. When Lessie returned to finally take back Alonzo, a whole new tragedy unfolded. As she picked the toddler up, Alonzo started to wail. Her heart sank and tears welled up in her sore eyes. Her four-year-old was missing and her two-year-old had forgotten her. This drove Lessie deeper into a manic anxiety, wasting away in her home, driven half mad by the constant influx of letters, tips, and photos. As the search continued, the detectives pursued leads in various states, including Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. With each new suspect came a fresh wave of hope, and every single raised hope hurt all the more when it was dashed by a lack of evidence. This continued for eight grueling months. Finally, in April of 1913, the detectives received a new tip. This tip focused on the same man that had been identified in September by Maddie Smith. The tip that had somehow gone ignored. The man's name was William Walters, and he was a wandering piano tuner. He would do work for families in return for room and board. The fact that the drifter had a child accompanying him was not initially strange, but with Bobby Dunbar in their minds, people started looking at this tinker with a suspicious eye. Walter's seemingly innocent persona was shattered when women in the town of Hub, Mississippi, witnessed him beating the child with a whip. The local deputies detained Walters 
and questioned him about the lad's parentage. Locals reported that Walters had given various answers as to who the child's parents were. At several times, he claimed the boy was his son, his nephew, or a friend's child. Since Walters did not have a clear story and treated the child cruelly, the ladies of Hub figured he must have something to hide. And since they followed the news, they guessed that the child must be Bobby Dunbar. Hub's sheriff detained Walters while the Citizens Committee sent a telegram to the Dunbars. Cautious about getting their hopes up, Lessie and Percy requested pictures. Two days later, they received the photos of Walters' boy. Even though people had been sending the Dunbars pictures of children for months, the photos from Mississippi filled them with hope. The child looked like their son. On April 18, 1913, almost eight months since Bobby had first disappeared, Percy telegrammed Hub. He demanded that they keep Walters in custody. Though the suspicious piano tuner had already been released, the Hub police set out to recapture him. It didn't take long for the police to apprehend Walters. In the meantime, Percy rode a train down to Hub to rescue his missing son. When he got into town, the boy was sleeping. But that wouldn't stop Percy Dunbar. After months without his child, he couldn't wait another second. He examined the boy carefully. Percy claimed that the boy resembled his son in every way, except his eyes, which were the wrong shape and a distinctive scar on his left foot was now smooth. Still, he contacted his wife, and she hurried after him to confirm the boy's identity. When Lessie first saw the sleeping boy, she did not know whether he was her child or not. As she pondered, he suddenly awoke and began to scream. Lessie leapt back horrified that another one of her sons reacted to her with such fear. Percy laid a hand on his wife's shoulder, soothing her. Maybe Bobby was disoriented and confused after living on the road for two-thirds of a year. Or he was horrified to wake up, surrounded by strangers. In either case, neither parent could be completely sure he was their boy. The next day, the Dunbars returned to see Bobby again. The police permitted Lessie to give the boy a bath. When she took off his clothes, she recognized his moles and scars. She proclaimed that he was indeed the child they had lost eight months prior. Percy further identified his son by lifting him onto his shoulders in front of a crowd. When the boy started to rage and scream, Percy declared that his son had such a temper, and this was proof of his identity. Confident the missing child had been found, the police handed Bobby over to the Dunbars. The Dunbars brought the child they were convinced was Bobby home on April 25, 1913. The entire town of Opelousas was so enamored that they threw a parade for the boy with a brass band and hundreds of spectators. They even let the boy ride on top of a fire engine. Back in Hub, William Walters now faced a serious charge of kidnapping, which at the time 
was punishable by death. As the Dunbars celebrated, Bobby awaited his trial. He begged for mercy, claiming he was innocent of kidnapping and did not deserve to be executed. His fears were augmented by the lynch mob that gathered outside the jail. But even as he worried that he would be the victim of mob justice, his prayers were answered. This salvation came in the form of a woman from North Carolina named Julia Anderson. After all the publicity surrounding Bobby's return, Julia claimed that the boy now living as Bobby Dunbar was, in reality, her child. When we return, two mothers battle over one son. And now, back to the story. In April of 1913, after a harrowing eight-month search, missing child Bobby Dunbar was finally found and returned to his parents, Percy and Lessie. But this victory grew complicated when another woman, Julia Anderson, came forth to claim the boy was her child. While detained, alleged kidnapper William Walters finally settled on a story of where the boy came from. He said that the boy's name was Charles Bruce Anderson, and he was the illegitimate child of his brother and a woman named Julia Anderson. According to Walters, he took Bruce away from his mother with her permission to prevent a scandal. And that was why he couldn't give a straight answer to the prodding members of the ladies of Hub. He was trying to protect his brother until the lie landed him in jail. Now, in a strongly worded letter to the Dunbars, Walters pleaded for his life. He begged the Dunbars and the law to find Julia, who lived in Chadburn, North Carolina. The papers seized upon this, and soon a wild search to hunt down this Julia Anderson began. Meanwhile, the Dunbars tried to get Bobby reacquainted with his old life. Lessie tried to rouse some memories by telling him of their life in Louisiana. Her hopes began to rise when he asked if he could see his brother. But Alonzo had been mentioned in the days before. However, the Dunbars started showing him his toys and possessions, and he claimed to recognize the sandals that he had deserted back in August. But when they asked him about his kidnapping and what had happened for the eight months he was missing... The boy became silent and even began to cry. Yet still, the Dunbars believed he was their son. But this fact was still far from confirmed when Julia Anderson finally came forward. She was an employee of Walter's parents, a caretaker and a field hand. Her story matched Walter's almost identically, except for one detail. According to both of them, she had let Walters take her boy in February of 1912, six full months before Bobby Dunbar went missing. Anderson reported that Walters said he was only taking her son off her hands for a few days, but these few days turned into more than a year. Julia told the papers that Bruce got along quite well with Walters. He even referred to the quirky old man as ugly paw. The handyman made use of the child to make his business more appealing. 
People were more likely to trust a strange piano tuner if he had a cute kid for them to dote on. The questions kept on flying. The parentage of Bobby Dunbar was not only intriguing, but it was front page news. People were clamoring for the truth. To settle the question once and for all, a New Orleans newspaper paid for Julia to come to Opelousas to identify the boy she claimed was her child. She eagerly accepted and made the long train journey down to Louisiana to reunite with her boy. There, a committee including Dunbar's lawyer, John Lewis, three doctors who had positively identified Bobby, and a cashier orchestrated a trial. In the parlor of Lewis's home, they began the test. The men of the committee brought on five children, one at a time, to show Julia. They waited to see if she recognized the boy she claimed was her son. Julia was not warned beforehand that the committee planned this. She attempted to keep calm, but surrounded by strangers and put on the spot, she began to sob. She felt so very alone, the only people nearby having a vested interest in seeing her lose her child forever. Julia steeled herself, trying to calm her shaking hands and choke back her tears. But after all five boys had been shown to her, the emotionally distraught woman proclaimed that she didn't know. The test was deemed a failure. She pleaded with the committee to have another chance. They let her give Bruce a bath, just as they had let Lessie, and she positively identified him as her son. But word of the failed test had already leaked to the press. Soon, newspapers were firing on all cylinders, ridiculing the simple farmhand who couldn't even recognize her own child. Though the court attempted to maintain neutrality, the cards were stacked against Julia Anderson from the start. She had a shotgun wedding at age 19. The next day, her new husband drunkenly shot his pregnant wife in the leg, A few months later, Julia's first child was stillborn. Her second child, with another man, was also born out of wedlock and given up for adoption. And her third, Bruce, was sent away to Walters to give Julia a chance at peace. But she'd been dealt a rough hand, and peace was not in it. In spite of her traumatic life, the newspapers showed Julia no mercy. Newspapers described her as simple, coarse, and a loose woman. They mocked her for the fact that she had three illegitimate children and lost all of them. Some papers even alleged she was a sex worker. As Julia begged the committee for another chance, Lessie emerged from a different room carrying the boy. She had been listening to the entire ordeal, tense and terrified. Julia confronted Lessie, begging the woman to let her take the child. But Lessie, equally incensed, insisted the boy was hers. Julia attempted to get the boy in Lessie's arms to recognize her, but he only clung to Lessie Dunbar tighter. Julia could not afford a lawyer, and with no chance in court, she left Louisiana in disgrace, emotionally devastated. The child's identity was no longer in doubt. 
As far as the law was concerned, he was Bobby Dunbar. In 1914, the state found William Walters guilty of kidnapping Bobby Dunbar. Instead of death, they sentenced him to life in prison. But his freedom was not truly lost. Walters' lawyers sued for a retrial. The basis was a technicality. They alleged that the way the judge spoke to the jury may have subconsciously influenced them. The court ruled in favor of Walters, and the state prepared to redo the trial. But the case of Bobby Dunbar had been so high profile and so costly for the state that the government promptly dropped the case. As far as they were concerned, Bobby was back with his parents, and that was all that mattered. Walters was free. He returned to his life as a traveling tinker and handyman, which he did until his death in the late 1930s. Bobby Dunbar grew up under the care of Lessie and Percy, but this was not the happy ending that parents across the country had been hoping for. In 1920, when Bobby was 12, Percy and Lessie divorced. Lessie accused Percy of repeated infidelity. The same year, eight years to the day since Bobby disappeared, Percy stabbed a man in Florida during a business trip. No record survives to show why he did this, and he didn't do any jail time for it. But no doubt Bobby's father's temper affected the child's home life. In spite of that, Bobby grew into a bright young man. When he was 27, he got married and raised four children who all remember a loving, warm household. On occasion, Bobby and his wife would tell their grandchildren the intriguing story of his disappearance. This retelling especially fascinated Bobby's granddaughter, Margaret. From her youth, she was intrigued and wondered if her family really was genetically Dunbar's. But throughout the Dunbar household, Bobby's kidnapping and recovery remained a popular household fable a piece of family lore, not something to be investigated. Bobby died in 1966. He may have had his doubts about his true identity, but he made peace with them. And even curious Margaret seemed to have reconciled herself with not knowing until tragedy struck. Robbie Dunbar, Margaret's younger brother, died in a plane crash in 1999. Margaret was overcome with sadness. With her husband often at work, she was lost with what to do with herself. Noticing her grief, her father, Bobby Dunbar Jr., gave her a present, a scrapbook. It was filled to bursting with every single article that had to do with Bobby's disappearance. Lessie compiled it during the investigation so that her son would have a record of what happened. Margaret needed something to keep her mind busy, and since that mystery had fascinated her since she was a child, she dove into the collection of evidence. Margaret's search for truth started as a simple coping mechanism, an intriguing family puzzle to solve. But soon, it would become an all-consuming quest for the truth. Bobby Dunbar's disappearance was harrowing for all involved. However, the most intense and emotional part of the story is the fight of Julia versus Lessie, 
each woman believing the child in question was her son. Of course, neither had any desire to hurt the other. But unfortunately, in order for one of the mothers to have a happy ending, the other had to suffer the most devastating loss a parent ever could. And even though Lessie won, she never truly got over her pain. During her twilight years, she told her granddaughter that she lived in a shell of grief. The thought that she and Percy could have taken away an innocent woman's child haunted her, even as Bobby grew into adulthood. But the part of the story that intrigued Margaret enough to launch her investigation was the fact that neither her great-grandparents nor the court ever fully confirmed Bobby's identity. Percy and Lessie never found undeniable proof. Facts like Bobby's eyes being different shapes and that his scar had vanished stood in the way of certainty. The parents could have misremembered the shape of his eyes, and his scar could have healed, but we don't know. Perhaps the court was correct. Bobby Dunbar could have been recovered after eight months of being lost. Or maybe the boy who was found was not Bobby. He could have been lost in the swamp, and powers beyond his control forced little Bruce Anderson to live for 53 years under a borrowed name. The resolution of this story hinges on a simple question of identity. Was the boy Bobby Dunbar or Bruce Anderson? And if the parents were mistaken, a whole other mystery reveals itself. What happened to the original Bobby Dunbar? Perhaps he was eaten by alligators that the search party never found, or maybe a different kidnapper absconded with him. There was enough pain, mystery, and guilt within her grandfather's past that Margaret Dunbar Cutright launched her own years-long investigation. She was determined to find out whether her grandfather had been Bobby Dunbar his whole life or whether he was stolen from another home. Though her objective was to confirm that her grandfather had always been Bobby, her mission led her through a much thornier past than she was prepared for. What Margaret uncovered would alter her entire perception of her family and turn people she had known her whole life against her. After all, if blood is thicker than water, what happens if the blood is a lie? Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Case for Solomon by Tal McThenia and Margaret Dunbar Cutright extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
to stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>